Welcome to Diner Talks with James. Slide into the booth and let's have conversations we never want to end with friends we never want to leave over food we probably shouldn't be eating. My friends, welcome to another episode of Diner Talks with James. I'm James, and I'm super pumped to be hanging out with you all today in the diner. Y'all, I'm thinking about starting a merch line. Would you be interested in merch? Is that something you're intrigued by? Like mugs and other diner paraphernalia, you know, maybe a nice fork. Anyway, you think about it, right? You want to, you know, what do you need? You want a sweatshirt? Let's talk about it, y'all. Shoot me a message. Let me know if you're interested, if you'd be intrigued by having a little bit of diner love in your life. But I'm thinking about starting something because I think it'd be fun uh, just to to spread some love about the cool conversations that we've been able to be a part of here in the diner. All right, y'all. Let's get to this week's episode. Coming up to the diners, my man, Joshua Rivadol. He is the creator and founder of Changing Minds, a mental health-based curriculum, and the I'm Possible Project. Josh has been a friend for a few years, but he's one of those dudes that we only catch up so infrequently, but it doesn't matter because it's immediately connection. Uh, And I'm just excited for you all to get to hang out with him. In the 10 years that he has spoken about suicide prevention and mental health, uh, 400 organizations across US, Canada, and UK, and Australia, he has truly impacted lives uh he's also a stand-up comic you might be able to tell that we'll see i'll be the judge of that i'll tell you that uh he's a professional actor and author of eight books that's cool he lives in philadelphia loves to cook and recently grew a pretty mediocre looking mustache i agree uh and i'm excited to bring my man out right now shout out to my boy joshua rivetto Yes, James, me and the mustache say hello. Uh, it's getting smaller and smaller. It's going from here to here. So we're like, you caught me on a on a decent day. Okay, good, um, man. Also, I just want to say, like, I'm down for your merch. Like, I'm I'm hoping for a, a James Robolata air fryer, actually. Mm. Yep, yep. And and measuring cup uh, <laughs> set. That's what I'm here for. That's my vote. We're gonna do it. I mean, we go. You know these these places will put put your logo on anything. So uh. <laughs> this this diner, yeah, the diner talks. Come exactly. on, man. Then you, have, then you could have mozzarella sticks while we're in the diner. It's perfect. <laughs> oh, baby, yes. Oh, here for it, Josh. How you been, brother? You doing well, bro? Yeah, mostly. I mean, to be to give you an honest answer, there's ups, there's downs, mm-hmm. but like mostly life is really good. Like there's lots of beauty and I'm freaking grateful, dude. Yeah. yeah. I love that brother. We're going to get into some of those ups and some of those downs, but you know, this show is called uh, diner talks with James. So we got to, we got to kick it off the way we do. And I need to know, man, do you, do you have a favorite late night guilty pleasure? And you know, maybe, maybe someone who eats a little healthier nowadays and you're like, well, back in the day I did this, but you know, now I'm just eating like low fat popcorn, you know, I don't know, whatever you're doing, what, what's your, what's your favorite late night move? Just popcorn kernels. That's it. That's my, no, I'm macrobiotic now. Uh, <laughs> a lot of chewing. Um, I, uh, you know, I, I, I've taken to uh, lately in advance, I make pesto. And so I'll like dip like 
pretzels or like veggies in the pesto because it's a little i mean there's it's a lot of fat in that and like cheese and like nuts and basil but like that's i'm trying to eat healthier these days but it used to be like chips 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 man i love me some chips and i gotta stay away because some things are addictive i'm a chip <laughs> yeah. connoisseur yeah. yeah did you have a favorite flavor of chip or brand of chip we're not brand loyal here in the diner so feel free to share oh man kettle chips there's a, there's actually there's a great there's a great chip you can only find in cincinnati in the cincinnati region i forget what it's called but it's this like sort of sweet spicy barbecue chip and it's crunchy and they make a really baller pork rind too and i had it delivered to my house one time i was like i'm gonna order these and I thought I was getting bags of chips and it was a big like bag, like a garbage bag full of these chips in a box. <laughs> and it took me a little while to finish that. I was like, mm, I'm going to take this box next to my bed. <laughs> but you it still love mess. them. Yeah. It's oh, so good. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I had to give the pork rinds away because I was starting to develop high blood pressure. <laughs> I'm serious. And so like that was sort of the impetus for me to start eating a little healthier. Uh-huh. Actually, yeah, it was a yeah. couple years ago. Yeah. yeah. I love the, uh, what's the level up for the pork rind? They're like the chicharron, um, right? It's got, yeah. got, got, it's almost got the little fat nuggets on it as well. Those are delicious. Hell yeah. <laughs> and sometimes they have it, it's chicharron con pelo, which is just a little, still, they still got a little bit of the hair on it, but it's still fried and delicious. Is that true? The chicharron? Yes. Is that, <laughs> I was like, uh, pelo. Uh, is it pelo hair? <laughs> it is. Yeah. You'll look at that buzz. Yeah. <laughs> that crunchy fuzz. That's the name of my band, Crunchy Fuzz. <laughs> if I've heard, yeah, I've found you on Spotify. Um, Matapoca. <laughs> uh, yeah, chips uh, uh chips is always a, a classic move but uh, we got to come back to this pesto move brother uh first off most people don't have pesto laying around like that so that's amazing that you're investing in pine nuts the way you are um but uh it is a it is i don't know if i've ever used pesto as a condiment but now i'm wondering why i've never used pesto as a condiment no, like it's I love it pasta. Yeah, it's outrageous. Yeah, dip, take like you could take like naan or like pita or something, heat it mm-hmm. up a little bit, like dip, you know, some carrots, whatever. It's it's all good. And I don't yeah. use pine nuts because they're crazy expensive. So I use like cashews and pecans. Just oh, just a little pro tip for the diner folks out there. Wow, look Save at this. some cash. We have already leveled up out here. Uh, the Italian <laughs> in me is crying that you don't use pine nuts, but that's fine. I suppose you can put a whole bunch of other things in there. <laughs> yeah, you can. You can make it whatever you want. <laughs> it's your pesto, James. That's fair. Yeah, and that's the title of my book. Um, <laughs> it's your pesto, James. <laughs> it's a work in title of progress. Um, <laughs> The uh, the you live currently in in Philly, great town. Um, and is that where you were born and raised? You raised it in uh, Eastern Pennsylvania, close by Trenton, uh, which is like forty five minutes a little northeast. So mm-hmm. like like hood like hood lights, you know. So like Diet Hood is where I grew up in, in Trenton. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah Trenton, and I live Trenton. Seen some stuff. It's seen some stuff, and it's not going to talk about it. Yeah. Um, yeah, we don't talk about it, but, uh, I grew up there till I was 12. We lived, we kind of, we, you know, we were like kind of in, in poverty. Like we were like an inch away from government cheese, no shame, you know, whatever. Um, and it was five of us in a one bed apartment and, uh, we did our best, but that was, that was Trenton and we got out. We yeah. got out. 
Yeah, yeah. Where'd you fall in the lineup of uh, of everybody in there? Where, where were you age-wise? Oh, the middle. So I was like, sister and I are Irish twins. She's a year older. And then my brother is almost five years younger. So I'm like, definitely the middle kid. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> they forgot about my birthday a couple of years. And no, like, and then what's funny is I told my mom about this, not to like call her out, but just to say, hey, remember when this happened? She's like, I don't remember. I was like, my birthday again? Or the two times you guys forgot about it? I was like, middle child. <laughs> that We're is cool. so- Classic middle child. And if my if my wife was in the room right now, she would be snapping her fingers because she loves to talk about being the middle child and uh, the trauma therein. There is some. I mean, there there certainly could be. I feel like sometimes that falls under like astrology and like um, what do you call it, Myers Briggs, or it's like you 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 listen to the things that you want to hear. You know, mm-hmm. it's like yeah, of course I like walks on the beach. Of course I'm an introvert. Like of course I'm a middle child. Yeah. So it's like, it's, for me, it's like balancing awareness versus like, what do you, what's the real story versus what you're, you know, saying? Because yeah. there, I mean, there are some like funky little traumatic things that happen, but there's also like wonderful stuff too that can be used as assets later in life. I'm a nurturer, you know? Yeah. That's a good thing. Yeah, I agree. Sounds like the glass is half full over there, brother. I like that. This glass <laughs> is going well. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's coffee, baby. Yeah. Uh- I, don't, I, I can't read metaphors, by the way. Yeah, that's fine. Yeah, that's fine. Yeah, you take your time. Um, <laughs> the uh, <laughs> the the uh, you know, growing up, you said close to you know close to the poverty line. Um, yeah, yeah. And uh, and then you said you you were able to get out. Uh, what what does that mean? Like what what shifted in, in that that enabled you all to whatever get out means to you. Yeah. So, um, I think, I think the mindset was always like, like the poverty that we experience is like temporary. Uh, so it wasn't a mindset as much as it was just, this is where we're at. But I think a couple of things, like we, as kids got older. So my mom was able to, to contribute, uh, in terms of joining like the paid workforce. I mean, we were our workforce in and of ourselves as three children. Right. I mean, that's, that's a challenge, but so that, and then we, when I was a kid, my parents bought a piece of property in a place called Jackson, New Jersey, which is Six Flags Great Adventure, if people are familiar with that. Mm. Um, and it's relatively close to the Jersey Shore. And so we bought it on the side of town that there was nothing and it was sandy and and we built, you know, but we didn't get to live there right away because uh, the surveyor that surveyed the property for my parents uh, said for some reason that it was okay. Like, we built like 50 feet of our house on somebody else's property and there was a lot of litigation and the surveyor died, you know, during the process. And it was just a, it was just a hot mess. And so we weren't able to, and, and being in, in scholarship poverty, we didn't have the money to sort of finish that process and to do the legal stuff. But finally sort of all these factors came about mom joined workforce, things changed. And so we moved out there and uh, and and then my some of my dad's job he's like a civil servant and uh, and paid freezes kind of let you know they they kind of let that up and stuff so there's all these different factors and then for me I think you know it was also like age 19 I left home like I did a year of community college and that was me getting out mm. of of that you know so that's what happened there so yeah yeah. 
Yeah, for sure. Y'all got put through the ringer there. Then <laughs> the surveyor died, and it's just like a, a, a tragedy of errors, not a comedy of errors. Um, I mean, looking yeah. back, I guess we could laugh a little bit at it, but in the moment, that's uh, that's horrific, especially as some people that are trying to do the right thing and do right by their family and by their lives. That's really frustrating to have uh, those kind of errors uh, go against you. Yeah, I can imagine that. And I think, you know, in two degrees, because my dad was really kind of unwell and, and it didn't, I didn't, you, you just don't know these things as a kid. You don't have these words, but he was frustrated. He was angry. He was abusive, physically, somewhat physically, but emotionally. And I, and he also had like um, uh, something called retinitis pigmentosa. So he couldn't see beyond this and his vision was limited. So he's dealing with a physical disability so I think all these frustrations and things contribute to him just to being wildly unhappy. And um, and so I can, as much as I don't like that man too much, who's, he's not with us anymore, I, I hearing you say that and that tragedy of errors and stuff, it just made me sort of have like an aha moment. Like, here's another element of empathy I can have for that person, you know? So mm-hmm. thank you for that, James. Well, certainly not my intention, but if it was helpful, that's beautiful. Uh, Yeah. um, I mean, forgiveness is is your own process for sure. Yeah. Uh, Dude, I say that all the time, man. Forgiveness is not for you. For for the other person, it's for you. Yeah. Yeah, exactly, man. Exactly. The uh, so when it comes to uh, when it comes to young Josh, what what was what was he like? What, what were what were some things that you were into? What did you want to be when you grew up? Like was it always stand up comedy and uh, talking about mental health prevention? You know, a lot of young kids think about that um, all the time, but, dude. Yeah. What what were some things that you were into, man? And, and what did you want to be when you grew up? I wanted to be Dr. Pepper. No, I, uh, (laughs) and a hamster trainer. No, I really, um, I think, you know, my first, uh, you know, really my, there's two things like, uh, my first exposure to really anything because we went to church so much, like three times on Sundays, three services, one on Wednesday. And then my parents were involved all the time during the week. And it's a bigger story than that. But so I was like, okay, like initially it was like preacher. And then I was like, Oh, that to me, that was like, this kind of feels lame. Like I'm seven. This is not what I'm here for. And I, and then I really, like I sang in church and I started and I saw my parents acting in church and then like I started acting. So I really wanted to be a singer and an actor. Mm -hmm. Um, And I, and I pretty much followed through with that uh, for a long time. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, And so that was really exciting. And in fact, I want to show you this because I've always been very creative but when I was nine, I don't know if you, it's really kind of hard to see because I think there's like a, I made this, I was cross-stitching. I, like I've always been very creative and like, I just, I needed an outlet. And I was, I think it was, if I could go back and look, I'd be like, maybe that was for the anxiety. Maybe that was for the, that I didn't have the words for, but I made this, this thing. It's like a five by eight or something. And like, I just spent like ages nine and 10 cross-stitching and singing and being a little jerk. I, don't yeah. know. <laughs> I talked a lot of smack for a young kid that had no reason to be talking smack. Sure. Yeah. So. We, sometimes the wittiness is just coming out though. Uh, yeah. yeah, it did at times. The, sure. uh, <clears throat> um, yeah. I mean, first of all, that uh, cross stitch is beautiful. You certainly don't uh, associate cross stitch with a nine-year-old. I don't think I had, I barely had enough patience. Like I was like, no Velcro. I don't have patience to tie my shoes. Right. Let alone to sit down and do something as laborious and repetitive as cross stitch. Um, yeah. 
It, no, it's like that, and I and I stocked up on life alerts. You know, the uh, it was like I became a ninety year old grandma, like yeah. at the age of nine. Like it, <laughs> it worked for me though. Yeah, the nice shawl and everything. Yeah, for sure, <laughs> for sure. You said that sometimes the anxiety, uh, maybe you know, you weren't you weren't self-aware enough or had the vocabulary or the whatever enough um, to, to self-diagnosis anxiety, but looking back at it, is that, um, is, is, is that what you would call it? I, I would, I certainly would. I can, I can actually both depression and anxiety. I can knowing what I know now and being such a student of mental health I and mean, yeah. mental illness and the work that I do, I can definitely look back and see elements of these these conditions developing and 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 at times worsening, but not having the words right. So I like and even just how I move, like you know, and and how you know, I mean, you know, you Rome is 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 a baby, but he's he came out with this personality mm-hmm. that's maybe a little bit of you, a little bit of Tina, but he's his own person, man. And yeah. so, uh, and I think, you know, that for me too. And so just the way I move and I've always been kind of a fidgety person. Um, and so that's part of it, but then you exacerbate, you know, some of these things that we're born with, uh, with environmental things. Like you have a, a, a parent who's yelling all the time, you know, you live in, in an environment that's small and that's different than what other people are doing where they have a little more room. Um, you can't go outside. I was very acutely aware, uh, and my siblings weren't, of them talking about their financial issues, which we had when I was a younger child. Mm-hmm. And so that kind of made me feel insecure about the state of 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 where of, of, of security, really. And then just also like being yelled at and, and things like that. Like there's an in, in, an internal thing. I think there's a survival element to that. Like, oh my gosh, if I don't tone that down or figure that out or, or get them to stop, like I might not survive, you know? So it's very um, primitive in a sense. It's that amygdala in the back that's screaming, protect me. Right. So I definitely think there's an element, elements of anxiety as that little Josh for sure. Yeah. Hell yeah, dude. <clears throat> hell yeah. Uh, you know, it's, 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 powerful to hear you talk about it and, and, and recollect at it. And, you know, it's also, uh, it's so, it's always interesting talking about childhood, you know, well, I'll call it trauma. I'm not sure if that's how you identify it, but, uh, I'll, I'll call it that and feel free to, 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 to change that word to what's more appropriate. Um, <clears throat> but, uh, um, <clears throat> it's very interesting to think about, uh, how that has then in turn shaped who you are today um, and, and the work that you're doing today uh, with, with being such a mental health advocate. But in the moment, that's not what the goal was. As you said, the goal was survival. The goal was let's figure it out. The goal was, you know, I also hear you, you know, telling me that you had great listening skills and that you were a bit of an empath, right? That you kind of like felt and you carried some of your, uh, what your parents were going through or trying to do or, or whatnot. And you said your siblings were a little less aware of that. Uh, and, and to be so blissfully ignorant in that what sounds like would have been lovely. Um, but that just wasn't a choice that your brain allowed you to make. Um, and uh, yeah, that's powerful, man. And then so when you all moved over to Jackson, uh, and, and that sounds like that's more like high school age now. Um, Closer, what would what were you like in high school? Um, were you were you constantly looking for a way to get out? Were you super involved so that you got to go home later, or like what what did that look like? 
Yes, all of that. Yeah, I I had always been that way, uh, even you know even before that. But this was high school was the first time I went to public school. We went to the school that the church ran, which is always a great recipe. Um, but we went to that. I went to that school uh, up through eighth grade, with the exception of fourth grade. I was homeschooled. Um, but high school. So yeah, I was finding myself like I had just kind of gotten out of this very sheltered environment. And then I realized there's this whole other world of other people and ideas and things. And, and, and I clung to what I knew only because it was only what I knew, even if I didn't agree with it. And so I remember being on the football team as like 15 and like trying to proselytize some of these kids like what, what? And it, and it didn't help that I was like five foot two and like 110 pounds. And like, I was, I didn't go through my growth spurt yet. So I was like, who is this like twig who can't play? Who's telling us all about the good news? Like, so that is how it started. But then I started to grow and, and I was finding extracurriculars. And so I did, I did the plays, I did the musicals. Um, and I, you know, anything artsy and creative and, um, And it got to the point where like that even took over and that superseded the academics and I didn't appreciate the learning side. Uh, And I, it was just like, this is my outlet. And I look back at it and I'm like, that was my gang, you know, like that was my tribe. Uh, Cause what do you, what do gang members and, and uh, organized crime, what are they, they're looking for camaraderie. They're looking for safety and security, et cetera. Right. And, and I, so, you know, and I've, I've spoken at juvenile detention centers and in, in, with children in the justice, the justice system. Uh, and uh, and I see myself there. I could easily see, even though I don't you know, look and sound like a lot of the young people who, who are there. I see that. So I feel so very fortunate to have found those places. So I was growing. I was learning. And I knew at, at a certain point I was like, I'm getting a, I'm getting I also had a job. I got a job during the summer working at Six Flags. Uh, it's like the photo guy um, out of the front of the park. And I did a few other things uh, as well. And so summertime was work. Uh, and then senior year was was work on the weekends and sometimes in the evening. So it was any time that I could be away from home, I'd be away from home. And so it was like, get a job, get a car so you, so you can go where you want and do what you want and pay for all that stuff. And then show business is going to be your escape. It's going to be your way out. And so initially... Like, I mean, now I do show business work, kind of combining with mental health work and or for some societal reason and or, you know, to do it for, for work work. But it, it initially was like escapism. It was like, this is this is the thing that's going to take me away from this place. Yeah. Um, and it's grown. It's it's changed. But yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. In musical <clears throat> in musical theater, there's always that they call it the want song, um, where there's that that moment that the the, the protagonist often um, is kind of like, this is what I need. Right. Like, uh, I'm not going to give away my shot from Hamilton or uh, I want to be a part of this world. And, you know, and, and little moment like, you I mean, we, we know the big uh, the big want songs in a lot of <clears throat> Disney movies and plays and stuff like that. Uh, and. <clears throat> I do a lot of uh, improv comedy um, and yeah. in musical improv, they talk about how you need to find your want and the want isn't just like, well, I want to do theater or I want a new bike or I want to this. It's that deeper, right? It's like, well, why do you want to do theater? Why do you want the bike? What, what does the bike represent? What does the theater represent? What does the work represent? Um, and so to hear you, you know, blatantly name that, you know, escapism was, was the want, was the drive is powerful. Uh, in, in your world, as you've, 
you are still you are close with your siblings now, correct? Now, yeah, mm-hmm. yes. Now, um, is is in recalling your childhood, and maybe this is something that y'all don't touch with the ten foot pole. I'm not sure, but in recalling your childhood kind of going back to that point where it's like, I noticed this and my siblings were ignorant to it. As you all talk about your experiences growing up, um, you know, how has that been in processing? Is it, does it turns out everybody kind of saw it or were you just the only one who was observant or you know, were you the, did you take the brunt of a lot of it? I, you know, it's really interesting. So um, we didn't name the word abuse until Thanksgiving of, I want to say 2019, okay. uh, 18 or 19. Um, the last few years have been a blur, <laughs> obviously <laughs> for a few people. Um, but so that was really huge. Cause I've said it, I was saying it for a couple years prior and only, and so I'm 38 in three days. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, Happy birthday. um, second, <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, to be in my early 30s and to sort of start to recognize that I experienced emotional and physical trauma abuse from my dad um, and then to be able to name it and then to be able to talk about it in, in a room with people who also experienced. Well, who I didn't actually know. I know he was pretty horrible emotionally to my sister mm-hmm. um, and I felt that my brother never got any of it. Um, but they were around longer than I was. And it turned out that most all of this stuff that happened, it started to happen as we got a little older. And it happened when my mom was at work because they kind of worked opposite. And so like so, like some of the like the bigger physical side of things. And so naming that and talking about it for me was incredibly healing to be able to say that. And um, and I also know, too, that. Um, Often men don't deal with their abuse, if at all, and on average until their mid 40s and women in their mid 30s. So I feel like, you know, I have uh, and I'm still processing and growing and learning from it. And there's other elements uh, to, to expand upon and to learn from and to, to dig deep. And I'm, I mean, even in the past couple of weeks, I'm like, oh, my gosh, this, you know, um, but uh, to, to have that 10 year jump on the average and then to be able to share that in some of my presentations and to be able to share that with the people I care about and to be able to share that with people who are struggling and say, Hey, like, this is what happens when you're to your brain, when, when you experience this, right. And you might not experience all of these things, but you're 30, you're 40, you're 50, you're 18. That this could be a predictor of why, you know, you're experiencing cardiopulmonary disease or why you're, you're more inclined toward, addiction or substance misuse or suicidal ideation or whatever, or elements of of all of those. Right. And so it's, but it's, it also means it's not um, set in stone or a a death sentence or, or, or or set in stone, really. It's something that we can learn about and grow from uh, and use to our advantage to, to know these things. Right. So, um, but anyway, back to my siblings, um, you know, it's interesting because they deal with it in their own way. And I found out that, that my brother was physically abused, um, you know, and, and beaten a little bit. And, and, and my sister was less so, but the emotional scars uh, that I see from her um, are pretty big, you know, and yeah. we've talked and all of us have talked about that in, in different ways. Um, and we all have different, we, you know, I wrote a play called the gospel according to Joshua and then became kicking my blue jeans in the butt, which became part of the the major chunk of the work that I do on campuses. And, um, 
But I always say, like, if, if we were all playwrights, you know, we'd have three different plays for sure. Yeah. You know? Which is fascinating, right? That three people could come out of a situation with three completely different plays, but <clears throat> at the same time, it uh, it makes sense. Uh, mm-hmm. It is. Uh, I appreciate you sharing what you have with us, brother. I know uh, it's not 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 something just rolls off the tongue, um, and it is. It's it's really it's important to hear. It's powerful to hear, uh, and I think it's also cool because you know as speakers. You and I, we're not necessarily trying to, I would love to shield people from stuff and protect people from things, but that's an unrealistic goal, right? No, I'm like, and, uh, but I think what you just articulated was powerful where it's like, because of the work you do, um, you have, you're on the head of the curve, Right. And if that's that's why one of the main reasons I think we do the work we do is that we want people to be able to catch it earlier. Right. Here are the warning signs. Here are the things. And, you know, and obviously you know, I talk about leadership. I also do a little bit of stuff around mental health, particularly with men, but that no nearly not nearly to the extent of what, what you do. Um, but even in some of the leadership work. Right. It's like, let me share this story so that you could try to catch yourself from being falling into some of these pitfalls of leadership a little bit quicker. Um, and. And uh, and so it's a real gift that you have uh, to be able to articulate what you have been through, uh, what you're going through, uh, and uh, as a way to help others try to catch it a little bit quicker in themselves as well. Thank you, man. I appreciate that. And, you know, uh, something just came to my, my mind just just as, as well, it's, it's sort of a through line, but I just want to call attention just for a moment and we could shift back to, but James, you're a really great facilitator and listener and a validating force. And um, you're just really great at this. And, and I, I see it coming up in your, and how you present and how you hold space with people. And I just feel really seen and heard. And I just want to just call attention to that while we're live, you know, much love, much love. I do. I, I do see you. Um, and, uh, yeah, like I said, like I said, early, uh, early on in the intro, we, we don't spend a lot of time together, but I've always felt drawn to you. Um, and so, uh, yeah, m- much respect brother. M- and thank you for the love. I will, I will take that compliment and not, uh, try to flip it, um, <laughs> which is not easy for me to do anyway. Um, so, yeah. uh, so uh, I'm wondering, uh, you know, what were some of the roles that you had? You know, I was I was a theater kid, right? I was the the waiter in Havana and Guys and Dolls, right? I was yes. uh, <laughs> uh, all the way to being Billy Bigelow um, in in Carousel, which is a a fascinating no. mental health role in itself, right? Yeah. The lead the lead character commits suicide. Um, mm-hmm. uh, spoiler alert! <clears throat> um, but uh, the uh, and but. Uh, yeah, so there's a whole bunch of roles that I've, that I've gotten to do. Uh, what, what were some of your highlights? Oh man. First of all, I'm having a hard time not singing carousel right now. I'm like, well, it's coming by gum. You can, um, I'm, I'm having a real hard time with this right now, James. Um, I really wanted to sing, uh, some beauty of the beast before too. I was like the, I want song like yeah. town in a quiet, anyway, uh, I love to go on, ice- mother. You can go on. Dude. I don't edit, so I'm working on it. <laughs> uh, I, I, so I was in high school. I'll tell you, give my high school stuff. So it was Rusty Charlie in Guys and Dolls, who sings. Uh, he's the he has nothing else to do in the show. I mean, it's, unless chorus, but it's he sings few for Tin Horns. 
So he's one of the three that starts out. I got the horse right here. here. Paul Revere. Paul Revere. <laughs> and so mine was, uh, what was it? His name is Epitaph. He wins a buy a half, according to this here in the yep. Telegraph. And it's sort of this, you know, around future. Can do. Um, Can do. <laughs> that's it. That's it. I was like, wait a minute, wait a minute. My character would never sing this. I don't know. <laughs> What's my motivation? Um <laughs> And my second year, I was Cornelius and Hello Dolly, which was a really fun role. And I mm-hmm. got to my best friend uh, was my was Barnaby. He was my sidekick, so that was fun. Uh, we did. I we had a separate. We had a drama teacher who turned um, who was separate from the musicals, and she she turned um, Young Frankenstein into a play. And yeah, I played awesome. like just a whole bunch of different characters in that. That was really fun. That's awesome. Um, Mel Brooks is a legend. Oh my gosh, that guy. <laughs> I saw him in a Chinese restaurant in LA a couple of years ago. I was like, ah. Yeah. Um, uh, uh, Danny and Danny Zuko in Greece. Nice, um, dude. <laughs> and then like super ensemble in uh, Wizard of Oz. And then I started doing like, uh, I started doing uh, like a ton of community theater after that. Uh, or during like senior year, and then um, and I did I did like West Side Story twice. I think I did Joseph twice, Camelot, My Fair Lady, Carousel, Fiddler, um, The Miracle Worker. Um, yeah. I played the hearing aid. No, I I, I played the brother. <laughs> <laughs> it was an avant garde production. Uh, and then. Um, and then that year, that year at age 19, uh, towards the end of that year of college, uh, I started auditioning professionally and it was horrible. I was like a stand and sing kind of like, I didn't act these songs at all. And I, and I got, um, a role in, um, in a summer stock theater making 150 bucks a week doing, um, uh, what's the, oh, Footloose, the, the, uh, the bumbling, uh, Willard, Willard, and and then uh, yep. also sound of music. I was Rolf. The uh, you the, crushed the, it, brother. The the local newspapers said my portrayal of Rolf was a, a handsome and sympathetic Nazi, which is like I, this might be a poor choice of words. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, but well, thanks, uh, and a, and something else, and that was kind of how things started. But yeah, man, I just I, I still love theater. It's 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 one of my first. It's probably my first love. So. It's a rush, man. It is It is such a rush. Uh, that's why I started doing improv. You know, I, I didn't necessarily have the time to to be a part of a full theater production or didn't make the time to. Let me let me name it correctly. Um, and so mm-hmm. but improv improv gave me a little bit of taste of, of yeah. just being on stage and creating with people together. And it's a different fun muscle to work also than theater. But uh, but still, uh, <clears throat> yeah, it's that's uh that's incredible, man. That's awesome. So fun. Hell yeah. So you go to community college for one year. Um, you go to community college for one year, shake hands with the Dean, keep it pushing. Um, yeah. <laughs> and then what's, what's the move after community college? I moved to North, uh, North Isters near Rutgers actually. So 45 minutes from New York city, moved in with a friend who was going to Rutgers and I started auditioning. Uh, and, and was working was like, I was working, I was waiting tables at two different places and then I was waiting at one place and then at the same time was auditioning and going back and taking class. And uh, I started booking a little work here and there. Then I moved to the city with with uh, someone who's now my ex-partner, girlfriend, but who's a friend. And we were together for a, a bunch of years and I was still waiting tables. And then there was a couple of years where I was like doing a ton of theater and just, that's all I was doing. Um, and it was cool. And then I started doing voiceover 
And then I started writing for the theater and producing theater. Uh, and that took me to about age 25. Yeah. So I was, was juggling all of that stuff yeah. about 25, 26. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which is so much to juggle, right? I mean, yourself, wow. even in that, in that, I mean, New York City's not cheap to live in, neither is Jersey. Um, <clears throat> and uh, it's nice that you got a roommate, but still, it's still hard and waiting tables is what it is. Um, you're no stranger at that point in your life to living with less Right. Um, but it doesn't mean that that's the way you want to be. Right. Not <laughs> um, necessarily, so, no. And, and the, the auditioning process in, in, in is cutthroat. Right. You, you have to get used to the word no a lot. And that's hard. Uh, <clears throat> yeah, that, that's such a, a, a tough time. How did you how did you combat that? Uh, not well. Um, not well. I, I didn't have. I mean, I had these tools, but I didn't know about them, like the mental health tools, the inquisitive tools, the the mental health tools, um, the resource tools. And so I was doing it on my own. So I would I would, you know, I would cope by avoiding, you know, I'd, I would work, 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 uh, doing whatever. Sometimes it was busy work. You know, uh, I, I uh, at times I was never like get naked under a bridge drunk, but it was like. Uh, although no, but it, but, uh, <laughs> give me the right but, bridge. No, <laughs> give me the bridge too far. Um, uh, but I, there were times when I was definitely misusing alcohol for sure. Uh, just to avoid and things like that. So I would say not super well, like I wasn't dealing with, like I didn't, I, I, I kind of learned how to deal with rejection a bit. But I think I was keeping busy and I was finding different ways to avoid. And we can do we can avoid we as humans can find all different ways to avoid ourselves. Yeah. And it's not just through substances and it's not just through work. And so I think that was it was avoidance, really. Yeah. Yeah, that's uh, that's <clears throat> that makes a lot of sense. Right. You uh, <clears throat> you drink or or get high or whatever um, so that you could be somewhere else or someone else for just a little bit. Mm-hmm. Uh, <clears throat> for sure, whether it's under a bridge naked or not. Uh, <laughs> um, <laughs> the time is now. Different, so- different doctor. <laughs> <laughs> so, so you go from that period of life to what you're doing now is incredible, right? You're you're traveling around the country. You're working with. Uh, I know you definitely work with with high school, college students. I'm not sure if you do stuff with adults too. Um, I would assume you do, um, but uh, you do a lot of stuff around suicide prevention, mental health awareness, giving people those tools that you were talking about that you that you had but didn't know you had back back then. Uh, how do, how do we connect those dots for me, brother? How do we get from from uh, trying to make it as a New York City actor to uh, traveling around the country and 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 doing what you do still still crushing on stages uh just with your own script yeah yeah uh great question so um so around age 25 like i was sort of ready i was feeling like i was kind of ready to like transition into writing to transition into something else like i was doing a lot of like theater entrepreneurial stuff i was like getting callbacks for like jersey boys and like and and like south south pacific and stuff like that and and that was cool but i was like you know it's still not completing the circle for me. And at the same time, around this age, my parents broke up. Uh, good move. Good move for both of them. My dad didn't really see it that way. Uh, and I really kind of extricated myself from them in that situation. But I would keep tabs on them. They were three hours away from me where I was living in, in New York. And um, I didn't see them very often. 
But um, but we, yeah, I kept tabs, and my dad uh, really took a downward spiral pretty quickly. And so March 31, 2009, the day they were supposed to finalize their divorce in court, my dad died by suicide. Mm-hmm. And so that was just, that was traumatic in a few in a lot of ways. But one, you know, his dad died by suicide in the 1960s. And to the day that my dad died, he didn't know that I knew. My mom told me in secret around age 12 because she was trying to, I think, explain why he was so, the way he was. And um and her, I think, thought was like, you know, we're religious, stay together for the kids, right? So all that. Um, but so the transition was after losing my dad, I kind of went on this period of like self-discovery. I took a road trip by myself. I had wanted to get into a, a, a playwriting class and, and by the specific teacher that I really, really, he's not teaching anymore, but he's an amazing like children's TV writer now. But um, he... Um, brilliant writer and but his one man show class was open and so I was like all right well I'll take that and I was already kind of intrigued into it anyway because I had an acting teacher intrigued about it because I had an acting teacher who had mentioned that she took this class as well and so I took his class uh and then I took two other classes and I started developing this one man show in this class and it ended up having uh, like and I workshopped it and then I did it in New York City like uh you know, as a workshop and then another workshop. And then I put it up in a theater festival in New York city in the middle of 2010 and August of 2010, Mm -hmm. got some performances out of it and got really good reviews and got then invited to do it like a year and a half later. Um, uh, And I knew it and the invitation came almost immediately, but it was like, you can do your show at our, at this theater outside Philly that I'd worked at numerous times. And it was, it's a nice theater Um, and so that was going well. So it was, it was a, it's either a 45 minute piece, a 60 minute piece or 75 minute piece, depending on the version that I'm doing. Um, but, uh, it has, it's mostly a comedy. There's elements of stand up in it. There's scene work in it, even though it's a one man show, it's me from five to 25. Um, and the major antagonist is really my dad. And it never really, I never in the beginning didn't intend for that to be that way. But the end of the piece is me dealing with his suicide and, Mm -hmm. At the end, like in New York City, when I was doing it at that theater festival, people were connecting with me afterwards, like my cousin, my grandma, whoever, um, uh, died by suicide. And um, and we never talked about it. Thanks for doing that. And they would chat with me. And I, and I didn't get it. I didn't get how healing that could be for them. I didn't get any of it. And I tried to hold space, but I wasn't there. And uh, I was like, I'm just trying to do theater. Uh, but I was still cool to them. And so fast forward a little bit and we can, we can unwrap some of this too, but I'm, I'm giving you trying to give you the abbreviated version to this, to, to what your, yeah, dude, your no, question good, was, man. but thank you. But uh, so after doing this show, I, you know, I enrolled in college and I was making these changes. My girlfriend breaks up with me who I'd been with for almost six years. My mom more or less sues me and my brother and sister for the inheritance that my dad left us after he passed away. Um, And so I'm losing all these people. I'm going through lots of major change. The beginning of 2011, uh, again, like this is now six months or so after I wrote the show, 18, 19 months after I lost my dad, I'm now in suicidal crisis. Um, I wasn't paying attention on my personal hygiene, my mental health hygiene. Uh, the breakup was hard. Losing friends and family was hard. Uh, losing my dad was hard because there was an array of emotions, like of grief, of, of relief. 
and not and then being like feeling guilty that I felt relief because this perpetrator was now gone, you know. And so there was all these things that I didn't know I was allowed to feel. And then uh, I started thinking that nobody loved me or cared about me and the world would be better off if I weren't in it. And of course, that's not the case. Right. Like my brain was sick. You know, it was sick. All these things were treatable and manageable. I wouldn't wish this period of life on my worst enemy. I really wouldn't. And so for six weeks, I, I started thinking like and it progressed, you know, it kept progressing and I was dwindling and I was wasting away in my room. And I'd come out sometimes I'd work a little bit. I would I lost some of the work that I was, you know, I, I wasn't showing up in certain places that I needed to show up in. And I finally like had this epiphany. I nearly attempted suicide and I, and I had this epiphany and I was like, wait a minute. I don't think you want to die, Josh. I don't think you want to. I just don't think you want to be in the emotional pain that you're feeling. And and there was a, a little bit more to that. And I actually found out later that that's a common thread for people who want to die or, or who, who express suicidal ideation thinking and or attempts is that people don't want to die. They just don't want to feel the pain that they're feeling. And so that didn't make life any easier in that moment. But it was like, OK, so the world expanded just a little bit. So maybe I can get help. And so I reached out to my mom, who became my mom again. Uh, and so that put us back on, on the track toward friendship. And then, you know, and then I was getting help through like neuroscience and self-education and reaching out to people and counseling therapy through my university and, um, intentional acts of service and spirituality, all these different things. Right. And so my recovery process is about nine months to feel like a leveled up version of me. But in the meantime, I had this idea. I was like, I need to be in the service of other people to feel whole again and so uh, I had and I had this epiphany, another epiphany one day, and I was like, man, what if I took this one man show that I had and pair it and get trained and learn about suicide prevention and mental health? Because I really wanted to help with that because I knew other I started to find out that other people were struggling because I thought I was the only one. And then it turns out there's so many people struggling in different ways who kind of go to that similar or same end result that I had been pondering, which is death. At, yeah. at my own hands. And, and, uh, and so I really wanted to help other people. I was like, man, if I'm, if I'm me who looks like me, who presents decently well as a, a white guy in the United States access, uh, if I think there's no help, probably other people feel the same way. And it turns out that's, that's the case. And so, so I was like, let me pair all this stuff together. And so, uh, may I started pitching it around. I didn't know what I was talking about. I finally figured out how to talk about it, how to, you know, to, to, to put it together. And then I got uh, at the college I was attending and I was pitching it to like Oregon. I was pitching it to like University of Florida. I mean, all these places. And they were like, yeah, what? Um, and 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 then finally, and you know, I, 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 I got some traction. My professor, one of not my professor, but a professor at the college I was attending in New York City, Brew College. He was like, "Hey, this seems interesting," and he enlisted some students in the in a psycho in psychiatry, psychology honor society, and uh, and there was some oversight, and you know there was counselors on board, and I and I had it filmed, and we and I put it together, and I didn't know how it was going to go. It was in a lecture hall. I'd never done theater in a lecture hall before, much yeah. less anything else, and. Uh, <laughs> And then some kid, young man, waited till the very end after everything was done. And I said what I had to say and I shared what I had to share. And we had the Q&A with some of the professors and things. And uh, he was like, thanks for doing this. I've been you know, depressed for as long as I can remember and suicidal for a couple of weeks or months. And uh, I thought it was normal. I know it's not. I'm going to go get help at the counseling center. I was like, whoa, you know, like I got to keep doing this. And so the base of my work really started out as the one man play. Brother, what a journey. 
What a tr- <laughs> uh, yeah, a little bit. Uh, yeah, uh, <laughs> incredible that it, it came back to you acting, right? The one man play, yeah. uh, and uh, <clears throat> you know, the fact that you took that uh, that that course of that gentleman that you had admired, the playwright or or writer or whatever he was, um, right? That you took his one man play or one man show course. Uh, that's a bit serendipitous. Um, that that's what you wound up uh, creating and and the power of someone taking a shot on you right the person at your school um and you know there was there was there was so much in there uh, and and you know there's this whole <laughs> i feel like in that that period of life that i asked you to kind of talk about your journey with your mother was like all over the place right <clears throat> um and that is uh that's incredible that mom was a mom when you needed her to be the mom the most Mm-hmm. And, you know, what, whatever happened before, you know, we don't necessarily need to get into today, but, you know, whatever gotten to happen before the fact that she showed up for you in that moment, you know, I think a lot of times, uh, a lot of times it's scary to go back to someone like that, who we don't know what the question, the status of our relationship is, right? And if that conversation goes well, if that conversation doesn't go well, you know, I don't know where we are today. Right. Um, and, and I know, you know, that, um, and, uh, um, so yeah, so that, I mean, that was, that was a powerful moment, um, as well. And, and thank you for, for sharing your dad's story, your family's history, your own uh, history with suicide as well. I know, I know you talk about it, but that doesn't mean it's easy. Um, right. <laughs> I know you've dealt no. with a lot of it and, and your own counseling journey, your own reflection, your own everything. Um, but, you know, like you said earlier, uh, like, you know, there's still parts of your dad's death that you wrestle with. Um, and I'm sure there's still parts of your own uh, and potential end of your life that you wrestle with. Um, <clears throat> and, you know, once it starts to work, right, once this once once you get this great feedback and you have this amazing student that has the courage to come up to you and say, Hey, thank you. Uh, I'm thinking this. And now I'm realizing that maybe there's some more, maybe I haven't tried everything yet. Maybe there's some other resources for me. Maybe I'm not crazy. Maybe I'm not alone. Maybe I, I can find love or, or worthiness. Um, and, uh, from that to what you now do around the country uh, is uh, is is incredible, um, and I'm sure you've had many more people come up to you and share some stories like that, or stories about how their brother or their friend or their dad or their mom, right? Like uh, the stories that you have heard because of the work that you have do, do um, they got to be the wind in the sails um, that that keep you pushing. Definitely, definitely. I mean, I, I think stories are, are why I do what I do. You know, my it started with my story, but it's all these other stories. And this is a big reason why I started the Impossible Project. I was like, let me share other people's stories on top of my own. Let me make storytelling a priority because when we tell stories, it's no longer they and them, it's we and us, mm-hmm. right? And there's, there's elements of science that I could talk about that what stories do to our brain and what it what it, and then what it leads our feet to do, you know, and, and walking and, and, and making moves and taking action. Right. Um, but just hearing like and I have, you know, people who I now call friends, not just colleagues, not just past whatever, but friends who like I came to your thing that night and I didn't die. And now our family looks like this instead. Or I was going to kill myself that night. And I literally had it like 
And then this person, you know, then became a friend and is now a, 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 an educational counselor in, in a college setting. So she uses some of her, her, she does have a mental health counseling background, but she's an educational counselor. So she uses some of that. I also helped her produce her book, you know, uh, and things like that. So, I mean, that kind of stuff is super rewarding. And then, and just to know that people are alive and kicking it uh, is, I mean, I, no one could ever take that away. And that's, um, it's exactly why I do what I do, yeah. you know? Yeah. Yeah. That's beautiful, man. Uh, <clears throat> that's beautiful. You know, I have, uh, I've dealt with suicide in my life as well. I had a, uh, <clears throat> my cousin committed suicide when I was, when I was fairly young, he was the, he was the oldest cousin on my mom's side. Um, <clears throat> and uh, so the oldest grandchild and, uh, and he took his life. Um, <clears throat> and, I remember, uh, you know, I think it was in, I was either in high school or early college when it happened. And so I had some awareness of mental health and I remember kind of going through something, but I also, you know, he wasn't necessarily someone who I was super close with, uh, just, you know, it just because of time and space and our age difference was huge. Uh, rather there's like 20 years be- between us almost. Um, and, uh, uh, I, but I still remember his funeral and like, it was when like soul asylum was, po- uh, was, was, was popping, um, and runaway train was on in the limousine as we were going out to the, uh, the, the, the uh, the funeral home and stuff like that. And like, you know, I, you remember those moments or you remember the feeling. Yeah. And I remember my uncle and then my cousins who were, you know, his siblings, um, and then, you know, fast forward to the work that I do in residence life, you know, there, there were a few times where unfortunately we lost some residents um, mm-hmm. uh, to, uh, to that. Uh, and you always, your, your first question is why your, your second question is what could we have done? Uh, and, uh, and then nothing ever gets answered. Um, and, uh, and you, and you talked about something really now, you, you touched on it briefly when you talked about men and mental health um, and, and your own journey as a male with it. And uh, I think, you know, we as men and mental health, we, we crave belonging, yet we often run from love. Mm. Uh, for whatever reason, right? I think men are men aren't necessarily. I think we're getting better as a society. I think men are allowed to feel things. Um, are getting more and more allowed to feel things, which is amazing. Uh, and I credit a lot of social media. I think social media, as, as as much as it's probably hurt people's mental health, in some ways, it's also allowed. It's also helped a lot too in the normalization of therapy of of things like that. You know, when it comes down to being men, a lot of times. So I think it's not that men aren't taught to feel, I think it's, but I think men are still taught to be internal processors, right? Mm-hmm. I think men are still taught to don't present your product, present your, uh, excuse me, don't present your process, present your product. Um, yeah. And, uh, and that's still tough. Um, mm-hmm. And like that thing of like, I'm not a, deserving to talk about it or worthy to talk about it unless I've been like, and here's what I'm going to do about it. Or here's what I did do about it. Yeah. Uh, have you noticed that in some of your work with men? And, and I know that's not only men, um, right. but uh, you know, in the work that you've done and thinking about yourself and your process, have you noticed some of that? For sure. I think, yeah, I, I think a lot of what you said is, is, is pretty spot on. I think, you know, a lot of men and a lot of people uh, first of all, like, like, so all that framework exists, right? And then there's, there's, um, you know, and, and some of that elaborating some of what you talked about, 
there's, it, I'm not valuable unless I'm producing something, right? And if I'm not at my best and I'm feeling like I might want to die, well, I can't produce. So I have no value, right? And, and if I have no value, then what good am I? I'm a burden, right? And so burden is often what people talk about when they talk about dying. Um, and I think, you know, for me as a man, like I, I can, I get that too. I get it now. I get that, you know, I, and that's, that's part of the, the man that's part of, uh, some recent processing. That's part of a difficult experience that I've had recently. And that's part of like this ongoing process. Like my value is not in what I produce. My value is in the, the quality of relationships that I have and the people who I help and, and, and the good things that I bring to the table, uh, and, and things like that and how I'm showing up in the world. It's not always about how I produce, right? So I need to, so we need to start to check in on our on on, on how we value ourselves and how we d- display our value, right? Because, uh, so there's, there's that. And I think also with men and people in general, there's this idea like this need of reciprocity, right? So if like, and it's innate, right? Like in, in saber two tiger times, if, you know, if you weren't, cooking the meal, then you better have caught it. And if you didn't catch it, you better tell the story about it. And if you can't do none of that, you better get out, you know? And so there's this like, you know, cause we're, we're a, a, a cohabitive tribal sort of a, a species as it were. And, um, and so that's stayed in our brains and our bodies uh, for this entirety, you know, as long as we've been homo sapiens, I suppose. But, um, but when people don't experience, when they like, I'm in trouble, I'm in crisis, I'm feeling less than my best. I can't talk about it because then that person might expect something else from me. They might want something from me. They might use it against me. Right. There's all these different things. And so for me, it's like, we got to, uh, find, you know, we've got to work on finding the people in our world and not just one person, but at least two people, uh, who we can like lean on to a degree, not in a professional sense, but some you know people we can get perspective from. As men, as people, we need multiple you know who we can dive deep in, who we can have conversations, right? And then also know that by asking for help, we're actually offering that other person to have the sense of value, right? Because. The, the, uh, and, and, and meaning and purpose, because how do you feel when you help somebody else? You feel a sense of value, a sense of meaning, a sense of purpose. Don't be hogging those good feelings. Don't be doing that. You know, that's, that's not for you to do. So we got to, you know, we got to, we just kind of have to flip the script a little bit and how we t- think about reciprocity and help and, and paying it forward. And, and, and I, don't, I mean, I, I don't know what it means to be a man, James. I really don't. I honestly right. do not know. Um, what it means. I know what it means and what it looks like on me, but I don't even know if that's what it, it actually means. But as, as a human, I think we just, we need to re reconceive some of these uh, long held and some sometimes erroneous um, things that are no longer serving us. Yeah. Erroneous. Great word. <laughs> <laughs> that was a drinking game for today. Um <laughs> <laughs> Every time we say erroneous, um, <laughs> jug your water. Um, That's the name of my other band. It's <laughs> a great band name, actually. That's a great <laughs> ellipses. <laughs> yeah, man. What you just said is so astute, and it is. It's so easy. It's easier said than done. Obviously, changing the perceptions of what 
does it mean to be men? Uh, right. Like I'm doing a, I'm doing a mental health session for some construction workers in, in, in May uh, or June. And it's part of me that's like super scared about it. Right. Because, uh, <clears throat> because I just, you know, this is a, you know, as adults, we are also getting deeper and deeper into our own patterns and our own thoughts. And we're also adults are also closer to, having parents that were raised in more traditional mindsets and et cetera, et cetera. Right. And so, um, <clears throat> but it, it is something that is so powerful to talk about. And, you know, obviously the suicide rate in men is much higher than that in women. Uh, sadly, uh, especially in young women, women are catching up, uh, which is not good. Um, that doesn't mean there's less men committing suicide, right? There's just more women. Um, and that's, that's, horrifying uh and um and but still there are still more men that are that are taking that are taking their lives than women and you know as we think about the prevention work we can think about some of the individual stuff that we can do where it's like hey you know get your buddy to a counselor and or just get your buddy talking or let them know that they're worthy set up plans with them um and have conversations and just you know kind of be that uh, you know I like to say that commitment is patience plus persistence. And we need to be, mm. you know, commitment is that with our friends as well that are going through, like we let, we need to let people have their own process. We don't just need to be like, ah, I checked in on you once. I'm fine. Right. Like there has to be a persistent, uh, you know, coming back to people. And so, <clears throat> uh, so when you think about some of the work that folks can be doing for people around them, in, in mental health, you know, what are, what are some of the, the little things that you could say that someone can do to, to help somebody if they think, if they're just like, Hey, you know, I noticed that so-and-so's patterns have changed, or they're just kind of feeling down or the way they're, they're talking about themselves, their narrative, their self-narrative has changed. You know, what are, what are some tips that you have for, for people to start some of those conversations damn well, knowing that most likely that person will either try to avoid, uh, get defensive or ignore, you know, that, that, that attempt, that first attempt, especially. For sure. Yeah, I think I think a big gift that we can give each other, uh, even, yeah, I think one of the big gifts, and there's a lot of ways to say this, but you notice somebody going through multiple major changes, you notice somebody going through a hard time, or you notice somebody, you just pull them aside and you start the conversation along the lines of, I know you're going through this, this, and this. I want to let you know that I see you. You know, that's it's, it must be incredibly difficult, you know, validate what they're going through, because people who go through it, uh, that really deep level suicidal crisis. One of the things that they experience and my, me included is that you don't feel seen or heard or understood in a very long time. And so you're just kind of planting a seed there. It might take you to down that path, but it's a very non-confrontational, very easy way. And then you could even take it a step further and maybe ask permission and just say like, Hey, can I share with you something that I see of you, you know, uh, and they don't have to believe you. you they don't have that. You know, it, it doesn't have to be that way because sometimes when we're in a dark place. We don't see the good things about us, the healthy things, but it's like, you're, <coughs> you're still suiting up and showing up. You know, you're you're a good friend to me. Like you're still taking care of your kid, even though you're going through this, this, and this, right? So validating and then and then and then letting know that you see them and coming from that strength-based place of like, whoa, like there's still good things happening in your world. 
And you're not doing that to necessarily so that they can see that perspective in that moment or that they totally agree with your perspective, but it's to say like, Hey, other people have other perspectives. You know, I think, uh, I think that's a big one. I think being willing to ask the big question, are you thinking of suicide, you know, could, could, you know, be it, depending on, on the, the acuity, the acuity, the, the severity of the crisis or the difficulty that you're seeing, um, and then I think also like in terms of like uh, just letting someone know that you care about them, letting them know that the, how important they are to you uh, is really, really important, not from a shaming place, but just like, I, you know, I just really, really deeply respect you and care about you. Things like that um, can go a really, really long way. And then I think on, on a little bit more of a macro level, we also need to start looking this, looking at this as a societal issue rather than an individual issue, because it's it's a it's both, and we really often shift the burden of 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 this on the person. But yet, uh, suicide is is a is a is a multi pronged thing, and so you know we need to start looking at food insecurity. We need to start looking at cultural and systemic bullying. We need to start looking at food deserts. We need to start looking at sexual violence. We need to start looking at wars. We need to start looking at all these other things that, that cause, because suicide is about hopelessness. It's not about bad, crazy, weird, sinful, anything like that. Right. So if it's about all these things, then it's also about the box we live in. And so it's about making that box more tolerable, if not amazing, you know, for as many people as possible. So we need to, we need to look at it both from a systemic issue and also as an individual thing that we can just like show up for people. Yeah. First off, I know you weren't trying to do this, but like it was a really beautiful call out is that, uh, and the way you put it was that it's not, it's not just an individual thing, right? It's also, we got to look at the systems that are around us um, and how those are, are feeding to it. As you put, uh, you know, it's about, it's about, these systems, how they've created situations where people feel hopeless um, and forgotten. Um, And yeah, that is, uh, that's incredibly powerful. I guess I never thought about it in that way. I mean, I know that all those things attribute to it, but to the way that you put it is that it's not necessarily an individual issue. It is, it's, it's so much bigger than that. And you're right. We often do see suicide as just a, well, that person blank, right? They were going through this um, and, and whatever. <clears throat> um, and that is inappropriate um, and, and often misnamed. I mean, don't get me wrong. That's not to say that, that there aren't such individuals like that, but still, um, but still, yes. What are the contributing factors? What are the things that built up that person to a level of hopelessness to where it's like, well, this is the only way out. Um, <clears throat> that is... That's powerful to think about. And I know something that you, you are uh, famously uh, a, a pretty solid cook and you also enjoy, you enjoy cooking for others. Uh, you're, you know, back going back to your pesto condiment pro tip. Um, but, uh, <laughs> um, uh-huh. you know, I know that you also have, have attacked some of this work through food um, yeah. and mental health. Can you tell us a little bit more about kind of what you're trying to do there and, and what that piece of your work looks like? Yeah. So thank you for asking. Yeah. So I'm, I'm doing stuff around food and mental health. So, uh, so I'm also like a little side hustle. We didn't even talk about this in the intro, but like I, I do a lot of um, a fair amount of ghostwriting and editing and, and, and book stuff, book producing and, and things along these different lines. So a couple of years ago, I worked on a nutrition guide as a ghostwriter and basically wrote it, but had to do all this research and, and it was on healthy, nutritious food and things like that. And so a, a lot of it was like 
you know, this is what this food does. And this is what it does to dopamine and serotonin. And this is, this is, this has neuroprotective factors and this reduces inflammation. And this is what these things do. And so I was like, Oh my gosh, like, and then I started noticing what food was doing to my brain uh, when I was intentional about the kinds of foods that I, that I consumed uh, during a major um, episode of anxiety, um, a prolonged episode of anxiety a couple of years ago. And I was like, Oh my gosh, like I want to, if, if this is, if, if we could cha- you know, flip the script a little on food and, and, and make it about being a nourishing coping skill uh, rather than this is just something we do or it's something we have no control over. And then I realized not a lot of people know how to cook. And, and I've sort of studied that and I have a little bit of a food background as well, like working in kitchens and, uh, and, and things like that. And, um, and so uh, the idea is when we eat a healthy nutritious or when we eat more nutritious food, we're going to have a more uh, nourished body and brain. And so it's not about weight. It's not about size. It's not about, uh, and it's also in mind, you know, keeping in mind food insecurity uh, and things like that, you know, and, and, and food trauma and, and all that, because not everyone has the same kind of access to food. So um, my goal and, and what I'm doing, and I'm doing some presentations around this already, uh, is, is combining a, a little bit of my story with as a presentation, a little bit of my story with the basics of mental health, with food as a coping skill, with some science and then sharing like a couple of foods to stay to, to limit uh, in terms of like, you know, refined white sugar, flour, things like that, you know, um, unless you're cooking it yourself. Right. Um, and then um, and then things, uh, certain foods to, to, to get closer to. And so some of those foods, it depends, like if it's a community college and they have a certain food in their pantry, then I'll highlight that food. And then I'll also leave them with. Um, uh, with, with a recipe for each. And then I also, I haven't been able to do a live cooking demo yet, but a, a pre-recorded cooking demo, uh, on, and the, the one I have at the moment is, uh, how to cook a minestrone soup and just making it really easy and healthy and nutritious, um, but comforting. Right. So, but, so I want people to enjoy doing these things. I want them to, uh, be able to, even if they are experiencing food insecurity, like, what can we add to a thing of ramen to make it a little more nutritious? Can we throw a couple of spinach leaves in it? Maybe a sprinkle of turmeric. Um, you know, if we eat something that's like a can of soup, a progresso or um, something that might tend to have a lot of sodium in it. Right. Well, how do we counterbalance that? OK, so cut it with some, you know, cut it with some citrus or eat a banana, uh, at, you know, as part of the meal because it'll soak up a lot of that sodium. Uh, throw some potatoes in it, right? So little hacks and stuff too. And then the next goal is to, uh, and I'm slowly compiling this, but is to release a mental health team cookbook that focuses on, um, you know, nourishing comfort comfort foods. And so a lot of them will start from a, from as much as possible, like a vegan uh, base, but then you can add a meat, you can add, you know, a dairy if you so choose, but it starts from that place because, you know, food allergies and food ethics and, and what certain people value in terms of eat meat, don't eat meat, you know, kind of thing. So, um, so just trying to keep all that in mind as well. Yeah. Yeah. That's, That's what I'm crazy, doing, brother. You know, yeah. I am, uh, I'm someone who, you know, 
for most of my life, and I'd probably say even now, like whenever someone's like, oh, my blood sugar's low or oh, I got to do this, uh, like, and not, not diabetic, there's people that's just like aware of their bodies. I'm always like, I don't know what that feels like, right? Like, I don't, I don't, that uh, cannot compute, right? <laughs> and so, yeah. uh, and so it would be, it's fascinating to me to hear you talk about this, where it's like, you know, certain foods will change our moods and, and not just like, I need some chocolate right now. Um, or, uh, you know, obviously like, oh, I, I had a tough day. All I want is a bowl of pasta, right? Like not necessarily mm-hmm. that kind of, uh, n- not that level of changing your mood, <laughs> but mm-hmm. uh, more so, uh, like you said, like, you know, counterbalancing some of the things that are that are in some of the foods we already eat and how can we make sure we're increasing this and what are foods are, are, are impacting our serotonin and dopamine levels. Like that's stuff I've never even thought about. Uh, mm-hmm. And so I hope you do drop that cookbook on them, brother, because uh, that is, that's intriguing man that is super intriguing uh and and i also appreciate you saying that you know i'm a big fan of the Hayes movement right the health at any size um and uh, uh and so you know i love that you're like i'm not i'm not trying to this is, this is a weight loss this, this is a mental health cookbook which mm-hmm. is i've never seen anything like that before um and that's uh that's a super cool idea man thanks for the work you're doing thanks homie Appreciate that, man. Yeah, yeah, brother. Josh, man, it's been so cool talking to you, man. Uh, I respect the hell out of you, dude. Uh, I love your angle. I love your vulnerability. Uh, And uh, the work that you do is, is beautiful. Um, as it is tragic, right? Because I, I know that uh, you know we, we we can't we can't save everybody as much as we'd love to be able to, uh, and um, and so uh, I just want to say thank you for for coming and hanging in the diner, and thank you for uh, for for sharing what you did with us today, man. Thanks, brother, man. I really I enjoyed every minute, man. It was, a, it was always really nice to spend time with you, brother. I Hell mean, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Much love, man. Hey, Josh, Thanks let people know how, where where can they stay in touch with you, man? How how are we keeping up with Joshua Rivido? Uh go with JoshuaRivido.com. J O S H. It's it's in the it's on the screen. It's probably a good place to go. Uh, I'm not super active on social media. I, I just I it, I'm, I'm, it, it's just hard for me to do that. But I'm there. You could you could reach me if you want. Uh, Facebook, Instagram. Uh, those are probably the big on Twitter. You know, mm-hmm. I was going to make a parlor joke, but I decided not to, um, <laughs> stayed away. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, there's lots of ways you can find me all over the web, you yeah. know, seriously. Like I like lots of, you know, I Google myself often. No, I don't. Um, but <laughs> yeah. The I'm possible project, right? It's I apostrophe, yeah, I, uh, apostrophe M possible, but it's all one word, right? Yeah, I am. So I am possible project.com is, is sort of more of the business website. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, there's not there's not a lot of food. There's no food stuff on there yet, but um, but it's it's stuff I'm talking about and doing. And when I'm ready to talk about it in that forum, I'll, I'll get there. Yeah, you're right. You're damn right, brother. Well, man, uh, much love, brother. Thank you again for coming through the diner, dude. Thanks, homie. This Hell is a lot yeah. of fun. Hell yeah. Y'all, that was my time with my boy, Joshua Rivadell. Just a great freaking man, a storyteller. Uh, a man pisses compassion and oozes wisdom. And I I just, it gave, a, gave me a lot to think about as far as you know, whether it's the way we're approaching suicide prevention as a society <clears throat> um, and also as an individual um, and thinking about like, do I, you know, do I help this one person or, you know, what, what are the things behind it that we also need to be working on at the same time? Uh, and, uh, just, just 
incredible stories of, of forgiveness and trauma. And I just, I just respect the hell out of that, man. And I'm so glad that you all wanted to hang out with us in the diner today. Make sure you keep up with his work. It's really incredible. I don't buy that. I'm buy that cookbook as soon as it comes out. Uh, Cause I'm always working on ways to tweak my mental health strength. Uh, and, uh, yeah, much love, y'all. Thanks for coming to the diner. And until the next time we get to hang out, y'all, do me a favor and keep punching small talk in the face by asking better questions. You all take care. Y'all, it was so much fun kicking it in the diner with you. And I would say our timing was right about perfect because I just finished the last few drops of my milkshake. <laughs> Listen, y'all, you would do my self-esteem a huge favor. If wherever you listen to podcasts, if you could leave a rating, if you could subscribe, if you could leave a comment, a review, anything like that, that is how we get this podcast into more people's ears. And if you want to stay in touch with the podcast elsewhere, we are Diner Talks with James on Instagram. Pretty original, huh? I agree. Also, if you want to hang out with me, just individually on more places. I am James T. Robo all over the internet. Y'all had a blast with you. I appreciate you. Take care and stay great.